Super Scoreboard. Women in Football Podcast. Inspiring the next generation of girls in the game. Welcome to Super Scoreboard's Women in Football Podcast with me, Joe Hendry. And me, Callum Bell. Joining us, we've got writer, filmmaker, producer, award winner, the list goes on. Margot McCaig, how are you? I'm good, Joe. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. It is honestly, like every time we do a podcast, it's the most glorious day outside. I feel like take people away from the sunshine don't we Callum? Yeah the last it was a Tuesday like two weeks ago with Laura Montgomery of Glasgow City and it was the nicest night of the year and we had to make her stay inside and speak to us on the screen and I feel like it's happening again it's been horrible all week the sun comes out and we drag you in to do this I'm sorry Margot. I know. I'm not gonna lie guys I was actually out in the garden on another (laughs) show I'm thinking right (laughs) this is not. (laughs) How's lockdown been for you Margot? Oh it's been tough um because um as well as the sort of standard rules that everybody's living to I'm also shielding because of some health issues so I'm kind of on lockdown lockdown so it means that um I've not been allowed out at all so I'm actually housebound but I've got a garden which is good um and I have had the excitement of going to a few hospital appointments that's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> the highlight of the week. Highlight, yeah. Like, uh, you know, travelling all of like four minutes to get to the hospital. But those four minutes are very valued, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And I know you've got your grandsons as well and your son and your daughter. Are you managing to keep up with them through Zoom and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, obviously we talk all the time on Facebook and Zoom, and but it's not the same, is it? I mean, mm-hmm. there's nothing like that personal contact. Even at a social distancing thing, it would be much better. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to smell my grandson's wee heads. <laughs> I know. That's the thing, is like the big moment when we're going to be able to hug each other again. And I know you're shielding, and I know that it will take a little bit longer, but what a moment that's going to be, though. I know, one of my grandsons said to me, Granny, I'm going to squeeze you so hard that you'll break. that's so sweet you know Callum and I were talking earlier about being in lockdown and the sort of things that we're doing to to keep us going and you're such a creative person how's that been for you well actually it's been good I mean I think in a lot of ways um although lockdown is awful you know for all the reasons that are that are completely obvious and in the sense of the reasons of why it's happening and you know the horrors that people are living through but at the same time as well, I feel as if it's been like a lovely opportunity for people. So too often people will say, well, that's not how you do it. It can't be done like that. And I feel as if like, particularly with my um, my team at Nemeton, who we're, we're producing, currently producing the Bundesliga for BBC Alaba, you know, we're all doing that remotely and everybody's adapted so well and so creatively. And it's allowed us to look at new technologies and new ways of doing things. And to be honest, that's been so refreshing because I think it's, created a kind of community spirit that sometimes I think gets a bit lost in sport because you know you can be so busy and the focus is always on the end result the game and getting there and everything that has to be done and you know and there's so many sport comes thick and fast so um, there's not so much time for just taking a a step back and kind of assessing how you do things because you focus on getting it done in the quickest way possible but um, I'm, I'm really pleased that the attitude has been completely different and we've been quite innovative and as you have to be. And, you know, it's really encouraging for going forward as to, you know, maybe as a whole, people will start to think about things differently and approach things much more positively. 
And how kind of important has that work been for you? Because you said you're shielding. It must be frustrating being stuck in the house and not seeing your family. Has your focus just been thrown into what you get to do with your team? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's taken up a lot of time. And to be honest, um, you know, I'm managing it and, and, and putting the plans together, but they're the ones that are actually delivering on it. Um, which has been great, you know. Um, I know a lot of people, um, you know, were put on furlough or even made redundant, and it's not been a good time, particularly for sport. Uh, but luckily, we've adapted to um, making a run of compilation programmes, and now the live Bundesliga. So, from that point of view, it's been great. But also, um, creatively as well, um, I run my own independent production company. But that's um, my filmmaking part of my life. I've got lots of personalities. <laughs> Um, but obviously that's been in abeyance because of, well, I couldn't have been filming anyway, even if I wasn't shielding just because of the government restrictions. So it's allowed me a little bit of time to dedicate to being a bit more creative and spending a bit more time in research. But also um, I've just um, completed a contract on my latest novel as well. So I've had time to actually sort of sit back and kind of do the bit of work in that that's been needed to do. So, yeah, so it, all in all, it's not too bad. Yeah, and it sounds like as like you've we've said this all the way through, and everyone that we've spoken to is about taking the positives out of everything, and especially someone like yourself who is creative in different ways, you know, in terms of your writing and filmmaking. Then it does it kind of forces you to focus in a lot of ways because you have nothing else to do. Exactly, <laughs> but at the same time as well, it would be quite nice just to have five minutes to not have to focus. <laughs> all these people are like you know like pseudo crazy, and you know like reevaluating their lives and stuff and making these big statements and I feel as if like I'm just kind of getting by day to day but I'm, I'm really happy to be able to do that to be honest. Mm-hmm. You talked there as well about producing the Bundesliga, Let's, how was that? I mean that was you know a big surprise I think for a lot of people and um, how has that been going? How have you found it? Good, good and I'm glad that it was a big surprise because it was so exciting like with it all going on behind the scenes and um. I think when our titles rolled on the first live, honestly, I was in tears because how much do you miss live sport? I mean, it's just phenomenal because it's so much part of who you are. I mean, for me as a person, it's been what I've done since I was four years old, you know, in terms of first of all, mm-hmm. spectator. Um, but it's been great. I think the reaction was so positive. Um, you know, people have just been so just so starved of um, of live sport. But I think from a personal perspective, the fact that it was women's sport is hugely important to me because I'm always banging the drum about how, you know, we have to we have to work harder and we have to make sure that there's some kind of equilibrium in the terms of the representation of women in sport. And, you know, the media just don't represent women enough. The stats are always horrendous when you consider um, you know the, the percentage of men's live sports compared to women's live sports so from that point of view it was absolutely delightful to you know to, to for us to turn on the screen and for it to be a women's football match and it was good you know it's really good to watch it's fab when we were speaking to Laura Montgomery last time about that very thing she said you know it's great that 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 is happening but also that it's not Scottish women's football but at the beginning of this season you know the first the Glasgow City Celtic game was on and then there was a commitment to show more through BBC Alba wasn't there in terms of the women's game throughout this season so you know it was just stopped at a really inopportune moment but things were moving in a more positive direction in terms of you know that equilibrium being way far off it but a step in the right direction. I mean definitely from uh, from BBC Alba's perspective I think I mean, I've been sort of working with the channel since 2008 and sort of one of the very first things I did as sports editor was like, 
you know, put out the, the baton, why are we not doing women's sport, what women's sport are we going to do? And quite quickly, within a couple of months, you know, that, that came part of the farm movement and it stayed consistent. And all that's happened is it's grown and grown over these last years, which is fantastic. You know, women's rugby, women's football, uh, women's shinty, women's curling. So I think there's a real commitment and dedication. And I just hope that, um, you know, that others will follow suit. I'm, I'm quite concerned at this moment in time because I feel as if like this is a real crisis, you know, in terms of women's representation in sport, because there was a momentum building, you know, after the World Cup um, you know, and, and the Women's Netball World Cup, I think there was a real sense that women were beginning to get somewhere. And I think this whole crisis and lockdown has come at a bad time for that because it's interrupted that flow. And whereas there's this, um, you know, there's this real drive to get men's football up and running. Um, and and from when, within women's sport, there's obviously that same drive, but I feel as if there's not that same support. Mm-hmm. You know, it's harder for women's sport to get back. Um, particularly I think for the domestic game in Scotland because you know these women aren't professional Mm -hmm. so it's going to be harder for them to get up and going in the same way that you know the men's premiership can so I really hope that you know that there is a bit of will and a bit of determination and a bit of input from everyone you know I feel as if Mm -hmm. like um, you know BBC Alba do so much but I think everyone's got to shoulder some of that responsibility you know, women are, what is it, 51% of the population now? You know, so there has to be that same commitment to women's sport um, as there is to men's. And um, I think the old arguments of people aren't interested just don't wash anymore. You know, that used to be the old adage, well, well, nobody would watch it or, you know, they wouldn't fill pages of the sports newspapers. And um, it's just not true. I think the, the television figures for the World Cup and, and various other events absolutely wholly put that argument to bed and you know people want to see women's sport and and I think the exciting thing about it is it's not just women that want to see women's sport I think Mm. increasingly as you go to women's sports events you'll see more and more young boys men and I think that's really helping that you know everybody's got to get behind the sport it can't just be women putting the drum anymore it's a, it's a really interesting point because we were talking about this just before we started the podcast, Joe, and it's, you look, you're looking for that bit of kind of light at the end of the tunnel in the women's game. Because in the men's game, Scottish football, at least in the premiership, they seem to have some sort of date they want to start, whether it happens or not. They've got something in place, but it's hard to see what the way back for women's football is at the moment. And it's, it's a really frustrating time for it because like when we spoke to Laura Montgomery, we didn't mention it because I think she'd have been angry if we did, but when Celtic scored that last minute winner against Glasgow City at the start of the season, it set it up for a really exciting season. Was it going to be the, the time they were finally toppled? And then you get to this point and I don't really know what's next. And I think it's the uncertainty about it that makes us all a bit, you know, down about the whole thing, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there's obviously a massive will within the women's uh, football network. I mean, you know, they're working really hard, the clubs and the organisation, you know, to see how they can come back and, and come back as quickly as they can. But... I think resources is going to be a big problem. I mean, obviously, you know, there's all these government and legal stipulations coming into play when it comes to the premiership coming back in terms of testing and isolation and all that sort of stuff. So I think that puts the women in a much weaker position, Um, you know, because the women are are amateurs. Most of them have got full-time jobs. You know, they can't just, like, disappear for a week in order to, to ensure the coronavirus free before they play a game. And, you know, testing costs money. And I think the infrastructure um, doesn't have that backing in the same way that, that the men's clubs do. 
Although a lot of these women's clubs are now affiliated to men's clubs, so you would like to think that they would be treating their women's teams in exactly the same way as their men's teams. And what we need is a wee benefactor like that guy that's put all the money in. Yeah, I mean, where? I, I just I find that um, I mean that's massive. It's generous. It's huge for that man to do that. But I just wish he would have um, you know invested a little bit into to women as well because you know. Football is part of the Scottish firmament, and it's not just men that play it, women play it mm -hmm. as well. And I think there's definitely a, little bit of a bit of frustration keeping in now as well, not only with the financial side of things, we know how much these COVID testing kits are £35,000 a pop, mm -hmm. um, you know, so that is a lot of money. But also, you know, there's a resolution down south, the, the women know what's going on down there, and like you see the top flight up here, so... There is a sense now that it's like, right, what's the, what are the discussions? What is happening? You know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of movement. I think people are starting to, the lack of information is starting to concern people a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think, to be fair, I think there is um, a lot of discussion and a lot of movement going on behind the scenes. I think maybe, you know, just because it's not sort of getting made public doesn't mean that it's not happening. Um I think it will be really hard though because there are hurdles that um, perhaps men's teams don't have to overcome. Um, you know, I, th I suppose in women's football they're used to adversity. You know, they're used to have to fight for everything so they've got that at their advantage. You know, in the sense that they're not going to give up. They're going to do what they can to make sure it happens. But I just wish there would come a day when, you know, they don't have to rely on that determination and that adversity, you know, that ability to overcome problems. I just wish that they would have the support and the structures and, you know, the financial infrastructure in place that will allow them just to focus on their art, you know, because clubs like Glasgow City, you know, obviously they're not affiliated to, to a men's team, but, you know, everything is a cost. You know, everything's mm -hmm. a massive financial burden. Um, you know, that, that, that's difficult. So where are the people with money? Come. <laughs> that is a good question. And I think that that is such a, you know, a key point in terms of that determination and being sort of woven into the women's game um, and overcoming adversity. And, and I think even as a woman working in football at all, whether it's the women or the men's game, that's something that you actually just have to have if you want to succeed. And I think, you know, going back to your own career and where you came from and where you started from, if you just give us an idea as well of, you know, at the point at which you started to where you've gotten to now is pretty incredible. Oh, thank you. Um, I mean, where I got to now, I, I, I didn't really sort of um, have, have any sort of hard and fast wishes that that's what I wanted to do in life. I just knew that, um, I, you know, I've always liked telling stories and I've always liked, liked sport and I've always liked history. So I've kind of managed to um, combine all three to create a career that is really creative and that I really love. So um, I actually started um, in terms of media stuff uh, back in Celtic. Um, although my initial job there uh, wasn't anything to do with media, I was there while I was a student um, from 1994. I was just working in the ticket office, doing all the season ticket banking back in the day, back in the day when it was all cash and you had to count it all up and it was all forms that you had to write out and you're like, I don't believe that could ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> Another lifetime. Um, and then when I finished uni, I actually approached the club and said, look, you really need a museum. You really need to have, you know, a focal point. Your history is, is I mean, obviously, they know that your history is, is everything about you. It's massive. It's this huge connection to the land, to the people, to the culture, you know, it, what is what makes the club so unique. So they actually um, 
said to me, look, go away and formulate a plan and a budget and, and come back to us. And so I spent a lot of time like going to like museums in Manchester and Liverpool and Ajax and you know, spent a lot of work in preparing a proposal, which I submitted and then they accepted it. So I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to cover this now. <laughs> but it was fantastic because at that time, um, you know, I got to work with all the Lisbon Lions and kind of older players and it was just a phenomenal thing to do. Um, and then sort of gradually we started doing in-house stuff, you know, for the big screens at, at Celtic. So there was little pieces of programmes being made for that and I kind of got involved with some of the history pieces. And then before I knew it, I was actually working full time for, for Celtic Media and then that was us. We started doing half our programmes. That was brilliant. I mean, we were doing stuff that nobody else was doing. We were doing live video um, webcasts of matches before anyone else. You know, we were doing full shows. We were doing daily shows. We really put a lot of effort into creating that kind of international fan base. And I know, Joe, you were involved in it at a later stage as well. But uh, I'm really proud of the fact that I was involved at that at the very start. And yeah, it was brilliant. And then um, I went off to work for Satanta as producer on Celtic TV. Uh, and then after I think four years, I left there and then work, went to work for ME TV, and that's when I started working on the BBC Alibis stuff. Um, so yeah, it's been a, a hectic time. <laughs> and in between all that, I created my own company, Purple TV, um, and I focus on making documentary films uh, via that platform. But I have a real kind of focus on ensuring that women's voices are heard you know, and celebrated, and you know. I always think that, you know, women's voices just haven't been forgotten. They were never remembered in the first place. So everything I do, um, you know, I have to make sure that, um, you know, in some in some part that I'm, I'm celebrating a woman, whatever capacity that she's contributed, because it's not all about men, you know. <laughs> I think my that was one tells of the... me every day as well, yeah. <laughs> one of the things I was going, you know, when I worked at Celtic, going through like the archive footage, you were in so much of it, you know, like a, a lot of the sort of features abroad that you obviously talked about with the Lisbon Lions and stuff. And, and like you say, it was something that wasn't being done anywhere else at the time. Um, and it was really incredible to look back at that. Um, but it's really interesting in sort of a woman's place in the men's game and how much that's evolved as well. I mean, you know, it's not the easiest industry. You gave me my first job in sport, in television, and it's not the easiest industry to try and sort of get into as a woman, is it? No, I mean, absolutely not at all. And I, I, I don't know if, if it would have happened in the same way if it hadn't just unfolded the way it did at Celtic. Um, I guess I was quite lucky just to be there in the right place at the right time. Um, but don't get me wrong, it wasn't, wasn't easy at all. I mean, I think, um, you know, I did get a lot of uh, negative feedback from uh, Celtic fans, you know, there, there was quite a, a vicious sort of targeted campaign at one point and I think that was all down to the fact that I was a woman and they didn't really feel comfortable with the women being in the position that I was in. Uh, so it was quite difficult to deal with at times but, you know, you have to just keep telling yourself that, you know, you're, you're in the job because you're qualified to do it. You know, that, that that's the basic premise of it, you know, you can do your job. Um, I mean, understandably, you know, we're finding our way a lot at the beginning because none of us were experienced in TV presenting. None of us were experienced in producing, you know, half-hour programmes. You know, we were just having to do it from, from the ground up. But I think we did end up being sort of very polished and um, maybe people calmed down a little bit, but some didn't, so. 
Did you find that emo- to to be a motivator when you got that that negative reaction from fans? Um, how did you like, how did you react to that yourself? Was it a hard thing to get through? Did you use it as a catalyst to to, to do more? When they attacked me doing my job, um, I, I dealt with that fine because you know I was doing my job. I had every right to do my job. I was qualified to do my job. I was good at my job. Um, if it veered into the sort of personal side, then I didn't deal with that very well, and I, I, I don't think many people would because you feel like you're actually being attacked. I think I could justify it when you know they challenged my capability and 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 doing an aspect of my job that I knew that I was very capable of doing. So it, that you know the personal side of it was difficult, um, but I, I have to say I got a lot of support. Um, you know, I got a lot of backing. I wasn't just sort of left high and dry. So, you know, that part of it, you know, did make it feel better. Um, but I think when you're working at Celtic, as, as Joe will know, um, it, it, it kind of grabs you. You know, it becomes very much part of your life. You know, it's, it's very hard to just kind of break away and um, not be in work mode. It's very all-consuming. So I think... Um, you know, things kind of all get a bit mixed in and things and, and you know, and so the personal side maybe um, does hit you harder because you kind of forget a little bit about who you are apart from your work role, if that, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, but I think, listen, that's not stopped. There's always been criticism. There's always been, you know, men who think they can do better than me. Um, I'm, I'm sort of, I've been in situations where I've been in, in rooms with um you know, I'm the boss, I'm with somebody who's, you know, part of my team and speaking to a man and the man will respond to the man and not me, even though that I'm the one that's employing them or asking the questions or, and that's happened frequently. Um, I mean, I try and sort of evaluate that and think that maybe they're just more comfortable speaking to me. Um, but that's probably being kind because it's probably <laughs> more the point that they think, I don't know what I'm talking about, so they better talk to the person in the room that does. I think you just have to be hard, I do. I think you just have to be determined and, and believe in what you're doing. That That's the absolute um, the key behind it, is just have faith in your own ability and the fact that you're doing something that will give other people rewards. Focus on yeah. them. Don't let them get you down. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's building up. I mean, you'll always meet resistance. And I don't think that that's unique to football. You know, in, in any industry, women do tend to meet resistance Um and it usually gets worse the higher up the ladder that you go, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think for, for me as well, um, you know, for, for a huge part of my career, I didn't really have a sort of female role models at all. You know, there wasn't anybody that I could maybe talk to that um, could understand how I fail or, I mean, certainly never had a, a female boss until, until very, very recently. And I think that would have actually meant so much to me. Um, so I, I really try really hard now to be as much of a mentor as I can to anyone coming through because I think that's so important. Just having somebody who can offer a bit of stability, a bit of wisdom, a bit of guidance and might not always tell you the things that you want to hear, but at least kind of steer you in the right direction. And I, I think I really lack that, which which is a shame, but I give it back. And it's not just, I guess, about that situation, but it's also about educating the next generation, not whether it's, it doesn't have to be girls, it's about educating boys as well and how to respect women and treat women and speak to women. That's absolutely spot on. And it's, I think it's changing mindsets as well um, because, you know, if you're producing a piece of content, like, for example, if somebody's producing a piece of content around a women's game who've been working on men's sport for, like, forever, they tend to think of it from a male point of view. 
you know, so like they might try and tell the story in the context of the men's game or, you know, try and, and kind of put it in, in the environment that they're familiar with. Whereas I think people just need to really think differently and, and think of the subject as it is and not try and contextualise it. You know, there, there doesn't need to be this gender association. You know, women's football is about women's football. You know, it, it's about the women that plays. It's not... I think we've moved beyond always saying, oh, well, women don't get, they work work all day and then they train three times a day and they're having to do a full-time job. We need to just focus on them as athletes now, you know, and not compare them to what's happened in the men's game. We just need to think think more carefully about what it is you're producing, who your audience is and why you're doing it. And obviously that's something you've got an absolute wealth of experience in when you look at the list of programmes that you've produced um, with, you know, your own production company. And one of them that I know Callum was particularly interested in as well, uh, Tanadice, um, oh, which he's God. been pouring over and asked if we could just do the whole thing on that. That was the dream. That was the dream. My, my, I'm a Dundee United fan, and my dad. Uh, that was his. That was his team, the '87 team. And my sister, who's older than me, he obviously loves her to bits. But she's the reason that he missed the semi-final at Tannadice mm-hmm. because she was being oh, born. No. <laughs> so whenever anything bad happens, it's her fault. It's great. But I, I, I just find pieces like that amazing. I was speaking to Joe about it before we came on, and obviously you've got parts of it with the players in English, then you've got parts of the story that's told to the visual other parts of the story that's told in Gaelic. It must be really difficult to mesh the three, but you, uh, for me to say, I think you did a wonderful job of it. Um, oh, thank you. Thank how you. was it doing that at first, trying to mesh those three aspects on, on BBC Alba? Um, I, I don't think it was difficult for me because I was always focused on telling the story. And I, I don't think it really matters um, how you tell that story, as long as you're you're integrating it in the best way. Um, I mean, I always build narratives into different arcs. So I think actually, in some ways, those different elements complement the way that I tell stories. Um, I'm not a fan of linear. Um, I like to I like to unfold a story in perhaps the same way that a memory might unfold. You know, our memories are quite fractured. So there might be, you know, we might think about something that happened to us yesterday and then half an hour later you're focusing on something that happened 20 years ago and then you're making a connection from that to like a game you went to in 1994 and you know I think um, it's just how we think and I just think that um, when you watch a story in that way it just feels more natural to to take it all in so it, it doesn't it didn't feel um, difficult for me at all I have to say um, I just love telling stories and I think um, sport is one way to tell a story that really resonates um, culturally, politically, emotionally, economically, you know, in terms of gender as well. Um, sport for me isn't just about 90 minutes on the pitch. I've always kind of seen it as, as something that's broader than that. Um, you know, my own family experience was, was going to football matches from age four. Seven of us went. You know, it, it was the highlight of your week, the whole family trundling off to Celtic Park and, you know, eating afterwards, talking about the game. You know, every night the pink would arrive, you'd be rushing to see what was in the sport. It, it's all about just creating emotional moments, I think. So I might think of a goal that somebody at Celtic scored, which I love, but then it'll instantly also make me think about a personal thing that's equated with that. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I think, I think yeah. a lot of people think like that and I think it's so much of who we are I think particularly in Scotland um, you know football is the kind of um, the core sport but we have to bring in all those other elements and when you do that 
I think the stories are just wonderful and, and they have this sort of lasting legacy that is really impactful. I mean, even from the Famous Five film that I made, you know, you're talking about going back to the 50s, but, you know, the themes and everything that's that's entwined in that that narrative are actually kind of quite relevant now. So you're you're almost kind of looking back in in yourself from a kind of future point of view, if that mm. makes any sense. Um, but yeah, so I think um, I think that's why they go down so well because people do associate um, beyond the actual sport itself when they watch films like that. Yeah, I think that's definitely what stands out for me. What as a you know an audience member is the emotion that it, that they bring out. Um, particularly, you know, the one the Tommy Burns one in particular was very very strong, and I think that that's why people relate to it because you tell stories that people remember how they felt you know, the first time they heard it. And, but then it's also about seeing the people that they looked up to. And I think that was one of the things that strikes you is how actually, you know, they dealt with the situation and you can kind of scratch the surface with that. And that's bringing something to the audience that, you know, they wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah, I think the Tommy Burns one was particularly emotional. Um, I think because um, I told the story through the testimony of his children. So mm. it was kind of like their story and how they related with their dad. So um, I know there's been great, programs made a bit told me before which have focused on his his football and his ability and his talent but I wanted this one to be you know more personal and, and more of an insight into just Tommy as a dad I mean obviously the football stuff and the manager stuff is, is totally integrated into that story but for, for the kids to be involved in the way they did was, was really, really special. But it was it was hell of an emotional story to make. Mm. I do a lot of crying in my edits, sweet guy. Honestly, and, and because I knew Tommy as well, it was really hard. And even Jimmy Johnston, that was really hard. Um, one thing about Jimmy's story, um, I, I was kind of quite anxious about you know, how am I going to approach his daughters because they'd never done anything before. And I thought, I, I assumed that was because they just didn't like talking on camera or they didn't really want to be involved in any stories about their dad. I just didn't know. So I was kind of worried about, about how am I going to get them to be included in this because I don't want it just to be another story told through the eyes of his son. But when I asked them would they participate, they were like, oh my God, we'd love to. And, and the kind of horrible thing about it is they said that no one's ever asked us. They always just ask to speak to James. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but you're his daughters. You're his mm-hmm. children too. And they were so, so delighted to be involved. Mm-hmm. And that kind of really hit me. Like, you know, we need to start yeah. telling stories more from a woman's point of view. Just because of the subject matter as a male, you know, mm-hmm. why why were the girls excluded from the retelling of that story up until that yeah. point? So I was really proud that they did that and that they had you know, that ability to share their emotions and talk about their dad in such an intimate way. Um, you know, they got their moment as well, so I was proud of them. Mm-hmm. And was it particularly rewarding then to, to make the, the documentary about Glasgow City, the woman who built Glasgow City, to kind of get to mesh all of these passions of yours? Um, you've got the history aspect, you've got em- empowering these voices that deserve to be heard. Is that a really rewarding experience, getting to make that? Yeah, yeah. I loved making the Glasgow City one um, because I... I you know, Cass and Laura deserve everything. They deserve as much publicity and profile as they get. I mean, I think their story is remarkable. I have to say, it's probably one of the hardest films that I've had to make, though, um, because they're such a big story. You know, so I've got two two people, mm-hmm. two key characters in this story, as well as a football club, 
as well as their lives and their backstories and trying to intertwine that all in. So it was quite hard. I had to, I could have made six hours easily, which would have been really watchable. Um, so it was quite um, difficult having to make choices about what can stay in and what can't stay in. And But they, they both really enjoyed it. And I think the audience received it warmly. And I just hope that um, you know, people have a better understanding of just how hard it is for Cass and Laura and, you know, what they've gone through to get where they are and what they're still going through, you know, because they don't get the support that they need. I think a lot of that as well is being able to make a programme like that and make it mainstream and make that information available to people so that they have an awareness of, you know, the challenges and the sacrifices and all the things that people go through, people like Cass and Laura, who've just got that absolute determination to see their sort of dream become a reality. Yeah, and one of the uh, rewarding things was um, that Laura had sent me on an email after the film had gone out and it was from somebody saying that they'd watched the film and they hadn't heard of Glasgow City before but they thought they were amazing and now they were going to be a fan. So I was like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> That's what you want to do. You want to, really, yeah. you want to impact people so much that, um, that you know a story that you tell actually has some kind of life-changing you know, impact on them. I mean, it could be something tiny, and I think that's that. That's what you do it for. And as a filmmaker, I know that everything that you produce becomes, you know, all-consuming. You know, you live it and breathe it, and it becomes part of your life from start to end. But looking back at what you've done, is there any in particular that you feel, you know, I'm, I know you're proud of them all, but the one that's particularly close to your heart? Um, I think being able to tell the the women's stories have probably been the, the most pleasing and and Rose Riley I think um I'm so so proud of that one um it took me a long time to get Rose to agree to do the film I think I remember first speaking to her in 97 actually when I was setting up the museum and I wanted her to do an interview then because you'll know the story about how Celtic tried to sign her but didn't realize she was a boy and stuff and that that gutted her but it took me a long time because she just Rose is the type of person who just thinks she did her career and she had a great time, <clears throat> but now her career's over, so that's the story over. So I really had to spend a lot of time, you know, making her understand that she's an inspiration, she's a role model. You know, mm. what she achieved and hurdles she overcame and determination and oh my goodness, she went through the wars um, just to achieve her dream is so inspirational. And I think not just to, to young girl footballers, I think it's so inspirational in life. You know, her motto of don't let anybody say no to you, just if you want to do it, find a way to do it. And mm -hmm. I kind of like sort of rings in my ear quite a lot. So I'm really, really pleased that I got to do that one because her story was so long overdue. I mean, she was playing like in winning the World Cup in 1984. And, you know, you ask people who Rose Ridley is and a lot of people wouldn't know. But I think we've changed that now. I think mm -hmm. she's got her MBE and... You know, she did um, honorary doctorates and um, I think the thing that pleased her most was um, the Stuart and Sports Centre has been renamed the Rose Riley Sports Centre, which means the world to her because it's her hometown and, yeah, you know, it's amazing. Um, and emotionally as well, like taking her back to Italy because she hadn't been back to, like, we went to the San Siro because um, that's, like, when she used to play there. Um, and just walking in with her and, uh, like, she was treated like a star. You know, like, you're just not allowed on the pitch in San Siro. And, you know, we got all these guidelines. You can't do this, you can't do that. But then when we got in and they realised it was Rose, they were like, oh, where do you want to go? Where do you want to do? Fine, on you go. Go, yeah, yeah, you can go over there. You can do what you want. <laughs> and just seeing what it meant to her 
taking her daughter there. Because I think that generational thing is so important because Rose's daughter um, was only a couple of years older when, than Rose was when she went to Italy. Um, and to see Valentina kind of sort of actually realise what her mum did was quite emotional. And then we took Rose back to the stadium where she won the World Cup in and wow, she was, she was she's, she's a terrible one for not being emotional on camera though. She'd be crying her eyes out like off camera and then <laughs> I'm like, what did this great? As someone who works with, uh, with, with callers on the radio, I totally get that all the time, you know. They'll yeah. come on the radio and be like, thanks for that 10 grand and then you get them on the phone and they're crying. Like, just do it, do it when we want you to do it. Come on. <laughs> I think we know. But Elena Botacci as well, I think that was hugely... That was difficult emotionally because um, everything was so raw. It had only been five years since she had died and that was tragic. You know, she was mm-hmm. so young and for her family to, to trust me to tell that story, um, you know, in the way that they did and so openly and yeah, that, that was tough. I think I did a lot of crying around that one. <laughs> but I'm happy to have told her story because again, like, you know, I remember saying to somebody when I was in the production or making a film about Elena Botacha and they were like oh right she was that tennis player what's she doing now and I thought oh my god do you know anything mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to know this yeah. story mm-hmm. and it's we have got these female icons these Scottish female icons um, and we don't celebrate them enough we really don't um, yeah if she had been a male tennis player that the same you know with the same story that incredible background of coming from Ukraine and not having English and dedicating her life to tennis and you know, playing tennis with um, the condition that she had, that she made every day incredibly difficult for her physically. You know, it'd have been all over the place. There would have been movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad to be able to do my bit just to, to give women some space. Yeah, what's next? I mean, I know that is a, a massive list of incredible things that you've done already, but so, you know, what comes next for you? Well, I've got one story. Uh, I've got one commission at the minute, but I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's kind of in abeyance while we're in lockdown. But safe to say it involves women and it involves sport. And it's going to be another cracker. <laughs> we will wait. Uh, how, how long? So, like, will that be announced this year, do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I hope to get into production um, once I can get out of my captivity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Hopefully get started on it in autumn. Um, and then hopefully get it out end of the year, beginning of next year. So I'll send you a invite to the premiere. I was going to say, that was my next question. Get in your eyes. treatment. Margot, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate uh, you giving that to us this afternoon. And it's been a pleasure to speak to you. And you too. Lovely to see you again. And nice okay, to meet you. Too. It was, yeah, pleasure, Margot. Thank you for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. Take care. Have a good day, guys.